Hello, welcome back. This third episode concludes our conversation with John Clark, mental health advocate who has lived experience. John will share what helps him and what he has found that has helped others in his work. So, John, with your, when you're encouraging people to have a conversation with someone who they think is in trouble, what sort of conversation starters do you think they should have with those people? I think it's important to express that we care for people and how much we care about them and how important they are for us. People are really fragile and vulnerable when they're not well and when they're experiencing suicidal thoughts or an underlying mental health problem. And of course, not everyone who does have suicidal thoughts does have an underlying mental health problem, but the majority do. So feeling really vulnerable, feeling really raw, feeling really fragile, um, just not safe, being able to open up to anyone. So I think we've, we have to take that into consideration and we've got to express that we really genuinely care about them and we want to help. We want to support them. We want to get alongside them. We want, to, um, we want their suffering to stop. Um, and um, we feel their suffering. We kind of identify with that. So creating that, that trust and that rapport is really important. Uh, that can be done quite quickly, of course. Um, but if we approach them with our concerns, I think that's the main thing. Not in a judgmental way um, that says you're failing, but in a way that says I've noticed, you know, I've noticed some days you're really tired. I've noticed that sometimes things really get on your goat and, um, and you, um, you can tend to get quite angry at times. And I've noticed that, um, you know, you might be hitting the bottle a little bit too hard lately. And uh, there's been days when you haven't really been able to get out of bed. Um, I'm really worried about that. Uh, it just seems to be there's some things kind of that you're really struggling with and I don't really know how to help, but I am here to help and I want to talk to you about what's going on for you to find out what we can do to make things better for you. So I try and um, get myself on the same level as the person. So I'm not the helper and they're the helpee. We're, we're together in this um, and I'm trying to empower the other person. So I'm not trying to make them passive at all and take over to say, mate, I'll sort it out. You just tell me what you need and I'll do it. Um, I'll do it with you, but I won't do it for you. So it's very much a coach kind of role. It's, it's like going to the gym and getting a personal trainer. They're not going to lift the weights for you, but they'll spot you and they'll try and make sure that the weights are appropriate and give you a little bit of information about using good form in the gym, for example. So we take on that kind of role with people. And then it's just a matter of doing a lot of listening, a lot of empathising, which is an important skill. And that skill can be learned as well. Um, but reflective listening, active listening, lots of silences, open questions, um, really is being curious, really seeking to understand. There's some of the keys that we need to, there's some of the core skills I think we need to have when we're having conversations with people. Really powerful messages, John. And I don't know about how you feel, but I don't really feel apart from you cannot really put any ideas in people's heads that they're not already having. So I think sometimes oh, we're scared of broaching um, 
for fear of upsetting them or fear of triggering them, but really um, they're, they're already thinking bad, dark thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if, if people are thinking it, it's a relief and it's a comfort because you've just said by asking the question, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you having thoughts of, of wanting to take your life? Are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Someone has cared enough to go there with you. And that's huge. Um, and to better talk about it is a massive relief. So it's, um, it, it works on so many different levels. If the person hasn't had any thoughts of taking their life, it also works really well, which is really odd. So as a suicide prevention worker, I often ask the question and often people will tell me, oh, God, no, you know, I've, you know, I'm, not, I'm not that low. And so they immediately think, shit, I'm, I'm actually not as bad as I thought I was because I'm not thinking about killing myself. <laughs> um, so either way, it works really well. Um, you, you just you can't go wrong with it. You just can't. Um, they can either say yes or no. But if you ask the question in a very unambiguous way, um, you're very likely to get an honest answer. You've asked an honest question. It's black and white. You haven't beaten around the bush and it's quite disarming. And if someone is having those sorts, you're very, very likely for them to say yes. So I train people to say, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Um, uh, asking it that way, not, you're not thinking of killing yourself, are you? And it's quite funny, actually, because I was doing some training in this and, and one lady piped up and said, oh, she said, I don't think I could ask that question. And this is really common. Um, it is a very anxiety-provoking question to ask someone. It feels so confronting. Um, it confronts all of our senses to ask this question. And she said, I don't think I could say that. Well, you know, the whole point of my training is to ask that question. Uh, of course, there's follow-up stuff to do afterwards, but it starts with asking that question if we're picking up on the signs. I mean, potentially, yeah, you could pick up on the signs and find someone else to ask the question. You can do that if you really couldn't. But I said to her, I want you to practice on me. Ask me if I'm having thoughts of suicide. And she said, uh, John, you're not thinking of killing yourself, are you? And I said, when we say we're not thinking of killing ourselves, we're communicating to the person what we want to hear and that we don't want to hear a yes. So I said, try asking in, in, the, in, the, in the positive without saying it. You're not trying to kill yourself. And she said, okay, I'll give another go. So, John, you're not trying to kill yourself, are you? You're not wanting to and she did it three times in a row and it just shows how deeply reserved we are about going there with people and so I do acknowledge this in my training and it's important to acknowledge that this is just this makes us feel anxious we have a lot of issues with asking this question because if I don't confront this and I don't name it up and just say to people look this is what you do uh, it's they're no closer to doing it um, so I say we do this scared, we do this nervous, we're a duck floating along the water. We just float along but our little feet are paddling like crazy underneath. And um, when you hear that yes for the first time, I, I help people just to say thank you for telling me that. I really appreciate you trusting me enough and being open enough to, to tell me that you're having those thoughts. And it just gives us something to say, you know, while we're thinking, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I don't remember any of the other training. I'm, you know, here's this person who is telling me that they want to end their life and 
I know nothing about this, but all I know is that I've got to ask the question and then do something after that. But, you know, it's just so wonderful if people could give it a go um, because it just works really well and there's a lot of evidence around it as well. This is, the, this is best practice to ask that question and you won't put thoughts in people's heads if they haven't already thought of it. And John, so if someone does say to you that, what is the next stage? What do you, so obviously safety planning and getting them the relevant help or steering them toward the relevant help. What does what is what can that look like? Yeah, so we want to get some sort of feel for how urgent this situation is. So if the person is um, very close to suicide, they've got a plan, they've got the means, they intend to carry out that plan. Um, in a short time frame, then I don't have many options available to me except for triple O. And I've, I've have done that. So I have been at someone's house and they've, um, they've attempted and I've called triple O and got them to hospital. Other times I've been with someone and found that they've been quite suicidal and I've taken them to emergency, to hospital and sat with them for three hours waiting for a mental health assessment to be done. Um, other times when I've been worried about someone and I've got a strange message from them on my phone and I can't get hold of them, I've rung the police radio room and got a welfare check and that has sometimes resulted in people being taken through to hospital or a phone call from police saying they're okay. So if it's impending, it's kind of like an emergency uh, mm -hmm. services or a hospital visit. If the person is saying... I've got the means, but I don't plan to do anything right away. I'm, I know it's kind of like I've bought a little bit of time there. And what I try and do is get them into their GP if I can. Um, or um, if they're kind of low-level suicide where they might not have a plan or the means, um, then a rural alive and well or a mental health worker um, would be appropriate to work with that person. Because what we try and do is resolve the things that are driving that suicidality mm. and then the suicidality generally abates um so for that moderate kind of area yeah i want to get people into their gp i want to make sure they have a mental health assessment i want to look for underlying mental health problems because i want to get them treated um, but as you say working with a safety plan for people so working through what some of their triggers are um, situations that cause them distress, things that they can do to distract themselves, um, things that they can do to delay um, responding because suicide is now seen as being a fluctuating state. Um, so people can become highly suicidal very quickly and then that state subsides and it could subside quite quickly. So it's a matter of can we delay for a minute? Can we delay for five minutes? Can we delay for 10 minutes? What else can we do? Where else can we go? Who else can we speak to? Um, and then supporting that person's coping mechanisms, reducing their alcohol use, getting some better sleep, um, changing their diet, getting outside, doing some exercise, connecting with some people, doing some things that they love, hobbies, um, all the things that are really good for well-being, we want to try and get going as well. So um, I've got the Beyond Now app on my phone um, from Beyond Blue. That's a safety plan. 
and I've got my safety plan on the phone. I think one thing about safety plans is it's potentially advantageous to have it um, printed somewhere because mm -hmm. I, I feel like on my phone I'm a little bit unlikely to use it. But this is the irony. Um, when I uh, had a particularly difficult period last year, I think I spent quite a few days on sick leave um, on the couch, um, just wall-to-wall -wall YouTube. <laughs> and I actually needed a mental health worker <laughs> to come in and say, um, mate, you need to get off the couch and need to start doing the things that uh, you know work for you. Mm. So I guess we can't downplay the importance of other people in our safety plan as well. And, of course, the Beyond Now app has those people that we can list and talk to. So where where do you where would you like in an ideal world for us to be in about ten years with some of these with with reducing stigma and empowering people and reducing suicide rates and normalising mental health like we have physical health? So I think we still need to work on destigmatisation. But what we actually need to work on is self-stigma now because it's really interesting when you talk to young people these days. Um, you ask them, uh, what do you think about friends of yours who have mental health problems that are getting help for it? Oh, fantastic. That's great. If you had a mental health problem, would you get help with it? Oh, probably not. Wow. <laughs> so... They're not stigmatising mental health at all. They're self-stigmatising. Okay. So maybe this, this is where we need to focus on. And so this was the issue for me too, is that thing of denial. Of, I couldn't have a mental health problem. I'm a normal guy. I'm, I'm a smart guy. I'm a capable guy. I can't be, you know, having a mental health problem. That's for other people. And I'm ashamed to get help. I can't talk about this. I'm, I'm weak. I'm a failure. All those... They're all things I said to myself. Not a single living person ever said any of those things to me. And yet stigma was a problem for me. So it's self-stigmatisation that we've got, to, we've got to look at. And we've got to equip people to talk about it too. So we've got to equip people to notice the signs and to be brave enough to go there with people and have those conversations as well. I don't even necessarily think we need to have more services. You know, people kind of say, oh, well, we, the mental health services are overwhelmed and there's a lot that we can do. There's, there's a lot that um, is already being done. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm lucky in the, that I found a good GP and that he prescribed the right thing for me and that I found a good psychologist. And I am privileged in the sense that I had transport to be able to do those things. Um, I was able to pick up the phone and make an appointment. I was able to advocate for myself when my the first psychologist wasn't working out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I didn't have the myths around, oh, you shouldn't take antidepressants because they'll get you addicted. You know, I was able to look that up myself, uh, have access to the internet. So 
in many ways, I guess I do have a lot of advantage, but there are um, mental health services like ours. There are GPs almost in every town. There are treatments available. There are psychologists and now it's moving to telehealth. So it's never been more accessible than before. So, you know, I don't really want to kind of just beat the drum of saying, oh, you know, we need more um, mental health services and suicide prevention services. Maybe we just need the ones that are working in there to um, connect with the people who are suicidal and needed at the time. And the only way we can do that is really by having its friends and, and loved ones to be, um, to be tuned in. Now, my experience is with depression. Um, and I was lucky that I responded. There are obviously people who don't respond to treatment. Um, and there are also people with enduring mental health problems like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, PTSD. The treatment rates are a lot lower for those conditions. And they're at much higher risk of suicide than someone with depression or anxiety. So it does depend on conditions as well um, that can influence the risk factors. So we definitely do need better treatments for those ones. Um, schizophrenia in particular definitely needs better treatments. And there are things like borderline personality disorder where the frontline treatment is something like DBT, dialectical behavioural therapy, and that's just not available in a lot of places because under ideal circumstances it's run in a group. And I don't know of anyone that's running DBT in Tasmania um, in the situation or in the setting that it was designed for, which is in a group. Some of the mental health services are running them and they're just trialling them, but you can't get in them if you're not a client of the mental health services. So, yeah, there, so are, there are still gaps there. Still gaps, yeah. And I yeah. have to say, as someone who is a carer, I, I really feel that for people who cannot advocate for themselves... That we Absolutely. Totally. You can become so unwell that you cannot... You're so disempowered, you can become so disempowered either through illness or through paternalism um, in the mental health services or clinical system that you become passive in your own recovery. And that can um, kind of put you in a bit of a corner and find it very difficult to fight your way out of that corner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So definitely my experience, I, I, I tell people I think I was one of the lucky ones. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, you're an, you're, you're an amazing role model, John, who's obviously incredibly articulate and, um, you know, the ability of, that you have to empower those you're working with is, is, is amazing. And, um, yeah. So are there many of you doing the work you're doing? So there are about um, 12 of us in Rural Alive and Well. Um, we've got some other programs as well. We've just started a teen program, so getting into schools, talking to teens, which um, is, I think, where health promotion messages need to start. And we've got a couple of other programs. Running a program in the seafood industry, um, they're at higher risk to suicide than the general population and have um, poorer mental health than the general population. So doing that in the seafood industry, um, 
We've also started a program where we can respond very quickly to um, emergency situations um, and any crisis situations. So, you know, we've seen the drought in the mainland. Um, we've seen suicides associated with that. We've seen suicides post bushfires. We've seen suicides uh, increase when unemployment increases due to economic um, crashes. Uh, obviously, something that the government is is aware of around this particular pandemic. Um, and so we've actually started a program where we can rapidly respond to um, changing situations. Even in a business downturn, um, you and I um, probably remember the 80s when stockbrokers yeah. took their own lives um, and that was due to a financial crisis or an industry crisis. So, and we have industry crises as well. You know, the forestry industry in Tasmania collapsed and we worked with, um, with people in forestry to support them. We've had um, the dairy industry crisis uh, a few years ago now. We've had floods, we've had fires, we've had droughts. Um, so we're, we're geared up to work in those kind of um, areas as well. Mm. So we've got, a, we've got a number of irons in different fires, but it's all geared around finding those people and getting alongside them um, to try and support them in a time of need. But we really rely on um, people to, to contact us with their concerns and their worries because we just don't know everyone in Tasmania. How can they do that, John? That's probably a good way. Of so we've, we've, got a, um, we've got a 24-hour phone, phone line, um, 1300-HELP-MATE. And uh, so if people dial that, they can talk to one of our outreach workers if you're concerned about a friend or a family member. Um, the other one is to jump on our website. So our website is rawtas.com.au. We've got a brand new website and you can actually um, send us a message and say, I'm concerned about someone. Um, could you get in touch with me or could you get in touch with them? And uh, we, can, we can follow it up. So we often get um, tip-offs that someone's struggling, um, sometimes even anonymous, and we'll give them a call and say, hey there, someone must care about you a lot because they, they uh, let us know that they're worried about you. I'm just wondering if we could grab a coffee. Have a have a chat. Um, so we're we're pretty low key, and um, our our motto, as you'll see on our website, is talk to a mate. You'll see that all over our cars as well, because talking to us is like talking to a mate. Um, we're very down to earth, very low key. We've got people from all walks of life um, working for us, and that means that we um, we can build a really uh, good rapport with people, um, and we sort of feel like we bridge the gap. Um, so you've got your GPs out there and your psychologists and psychiatrists. They, um, in general, do an amazing job. Um, but there's a big gulf between the person who's suffering and those guys. And we tend to, to span that gulf, if you like, and connect them in, but also do the, the holistic well-being stuff with them as well. So you're focusing on rural areas of Tasmania or rather yep, than... For Generally, for our face-to-face -face work, we try and focus on rural regional, so outside of the sort of Burnie, Devonport, Launceston, Hobart areas, um, because there are services available in those areas. The uniqueness of us is that we'll go to you, so we go to the, wherever people um, need help, whether it be Flinders Island or King Island, we'll, we fly over there. So we'll go anywhere in Tasmania to connect with someone who, um, who who's in need of help. Um, but for training, we do training right across the state. Um, so training wise people can book us in for training uh, mental health first aid I guess the advantage with us is that we practice mental health first aid on a daily basis 
So getting training with us um, will be um, a really good experience for people. And we also support people that we train as well. So if you're a trained mental health first aider with RAW and you get stuck, give us a call. We'll talk you through it. So um, we offer ongoing support as well. Uh, industry training. I love to get into industry. I suppose my passion is for males that take their life because that's my experience. That's not to say that um, suicide prevention in females isn't important. It is. It's just not my sort of um, strength, I suppose. Um, my strength is talking to blokes and saying, mate, this can be sorted out. There, there is hope. Things can change. Let's work together to do something to improve your situation. What's the next steps? Let's plan. That's my skill. Thank you so much, John. You've, um, it's been wonderful talking with you. Lovely. Thanks, Alison. And thanks so much for sharing your story as well, because as someone who got into that suicidal headspace, it wasn't until I listened to carers that it kind of just blew my mind. And so I take that message from carers um, uh, and people who are bereaved to people who are experiencing suicide to get them to think a little bit more deeply about what they're planning to do. So it's, it's both voices, I think, are really powerful. Yeah, no, they certainly are. I appreciate your braveness as well. Thank you, John. And, yeah, no, I really appreciate your time today. Um, Lovely. Anytime. I really look forward to your feedback. What would you like to see covered in future episodes of Do You Really Want to Know? Mental Health Conversations. Please email your ideas to do you really want to know podcast at gmail.com, all lowercase. I look forward to hearing your responses. And again, if this episode has raised any concerns for you, please contact Lifeline 131114, Kids Helpline 1800. Double five one eight hundred Beyond Blue one three hundred double two four six three six or Sane Australia one eight hundred one eight seven two.